As Kenya prepares for next month's polls, women living in the country's informal settlements have come together to demand guaranteed security and respect for women's rights. But too often, families see their girls' education as a luxury they cannot afford. And even those girls lucky enough to go to school still face many problems. The Kenyan constitution upholds gender equality, but in practice, it's still the exception. Strict COVID-19 lockdowns have hit especially hard people in Nairobi's informal settlements. Without a social security system to help them when they can't work, people face starvation and eviction. I warmly welcome you to our Kenya podcast episode. My name is Nangam Sokwinana and I'm happy that you have tuned in again. So far in our journey through sub-Saharan Africa, we have met some exciting people. If you missed our previous episodes, do take a listen. You'll find these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Before I introduce today's guests, I would like to tell you a few things about Kenya. Located in East Africa, Kenya borders the Indian Ocean. The country lies on the equator. Kenya borders five countries, Tanzania, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Uganda, and Somalia. The country is slightly smaller than the state of Texas in the USA and slightly bigger than France and Europe. Kenya's name comes from Mount Kenya, but the word originates probably from Kikuyu and Kamba languages, meaning God's resting place. Unfortunately, arbitrary arrests, police violence, forced disappearances, and intimidation attempts against the civilian population are part of the sad everyday life in Kenya. In today's episode, we have once more two guests visiting us. Please welcome Rachel Mwakali Mweni. Rachel is a woman human rights defender, pan-African feminist, community organizer, a gender justice and sexual reproductive health rights activist. She was born and raised in Madhari, informal settlement in Nairobi, Kenya. Rachel works towards changing patriarchal systems, structures and other societal systems that suppress women and girls. She encourages and supports women and girls in informal settlements to take up leadership in society, to fight taboos regarding menstruation, as well as encouraging women and girls to advocate for their rights. Furthermore, she's a board member of Amnesty International Kenya and the Young Women Leadership Institute. We also have the pleasure of engaging with Juliet. Juliet Wanjira Wanjiru is the co-founder of the Madhari Social Justice Center. She is a grassroots human rights defender and social justice activist. She is also the founder of the Matigari Book Club, which teaches true African history to the children and teenagers at the Madhari Social Justice Center. Juliet has been at the forefront of the fight against judicial killings and police brutality. She is known for the empowering words, when we lose our fear, they lose their power. Words she said during a confrontation with police during a protest. She is a fourth-year student at the University of Nairobi, pursuing a degree in international relations and diplomacy. Juliet and Rachel, you are both women and human rights activists in Kenya. They say that life can be dangerous for women in Kenya. I'm sure the issues that you are addressing are inconvenient for many. Juliet, if you could please come in first and thereafter Rachel. Do you feel safe as a woman and activist in Kenya? 
No, I do not. There are very many risks involved when you're an activist and a woman in our country, especially the areas we work around, uh, extrajudicial executions, many women losing their sons to police. We are constantly on the lookout for our personal safety. safety. But I am happy that there are organizations that are looking out for the safety of women human rights defenders and human rights defenders in general. Uh, definitely, I don't feel safe uh, because of my work as a woman human rights defender and also as a feminist. And the reason why I say this is because most of the work that I do is around also like um, call, speaking out truth to power, around the organizing of radical issues that most people don't want to talk about. That's um, challenging patriarchy in whichever space, in whichever form. Um, when it comes also, let's say, on LGBTQ rights, I am usually very vocal. Issues to do with sexual reproductive health and rights, that's access even to safe abortion. So you find like I have layers of threats that manifest itself from different spaces not only from the state, but also in different spaces that I challenge things that works against women and girls. And when I say this, I'm talking to a lived reality that I've gone into exile because of the work I do. I've been assaulted by the police because of the work I do. I've been arrested, I've been intimidated. But I think the way I am, um, with my experience, the way I see it being a, as a feminist is even worse of vulnerability. And uh, it comes even with such a way it's very painful. Uh, such a way it's usually, usually feel like you're in your own world. And that's why for me, I don't stop speaking out about investing on issues of women human rights defenders because our vulnerability manifests itself in such a way that our colleague who are male will not understand uh, based on the things um, we go through. The fact also we exist. I exist as a woman. It comes, it's the same struggle that I have to keep on fighting. I fight for other women. I fight for other people. But even me constantly have to keep on fighting. And even the risk, the way um, I'm also bringing it involved is also like sometimes I'm denied even work. I've been blacklisted in spaces. I've been whitelisted in spaces because of the work I do. So it's very risky, but at the same time, it's usually inspiring. Uh, seeing the results and seeing also people appreciating when the gains come in, though sometimes gains take some time. So it's in that journey that... Um, it's it's a it's a romantic journey, but at the same time of struggle, but at the same time it's also painful because of the risk that comes with it. Thank you very much, ladies, for sharing your reflections with us. Rachel, you had revealed to us that you grew up in the f informal settlement of Madare. Madare is the second largest settlement in Nairobi. More than half a million people live there in a very confined space. There is hardly access to water, electricity, sanitary facilities, and healthcare. How would you describe life there for a young girl? Um, one thing to acknowledge is that, yes, I've been born in Madari. I'm very proud of that. 
and I still live in Madare, even now at the moment. Um, life wasn't easy growing up there, and even is not still easy being there. Um, like if I look, I, I don't want to give an example of, um, of just like without a lived experience. And that's why I believe this, even this conversation is important. So Rachel grew up in Madari. She lives in Madari. Um, I've been in abusive relationship when I was still young, as early as 13 for many years, uh, because of poverty and, uh, because even finding a food on the table was problematic. Uh, finding sanitary towel was problematic. So these are the things uh, which I feel, and even now with my feminists and human rights journey, I feel I was abused uh, in different layers. One, the sex I was having is not consented sex. Um, that's defilement. Uh, this person was a bit older than me, and he used even to beat me in public and other space. Um, and the things that you have mentioned about even water, and I, I was even like, um, there's a conversation sometimes back also we had with Juliet, um, now reflecting back now with this COVID situation. It has been really hard because uh, we are the population that um, we are citizen, but the government does not provide uh, basic human rights for us, people living in formal settlement, like access to water, healthcare. So you'd find um, we want to stop the COVID uh, and we have been told to wash ants, which should be our right to have water. But it's luxury. There's no water. Water comes like um, two times a week. Uh, you can imagine, and especially being a woman, you can imagine you need water constantly. And here you are being denied your rights with curfew. And, and this for me, it feels bad because with curfew, our government, and I know most of African government, which I challenged, they didn't look the feminist approach and human rights approach on dealing with curfew. I think in their mind, they thought everybody lives in this bougie house uh, with two bedrooms or with toilets inside. But majority of the structure in Madara, even the one that I live, these are, I call them aluminium apartments. That is 10 by 10 room. That's your bedroom. That's your sitting room. Now we have been told, stay at home, uh, curfew starts at seven. If you are pressed at night, you can't go out. So you are forced, even your dignity is being taken away. You have to look for basins to go, to use it at night so that you can pour it in the morning, which denies your access to sanitation and uh, also your access to uh, even like your dignity. Because if you are living in a house and you are like 10 people in a family, and your kids are also there or you are starting your menses and your kids are there. Even it makes it hard for you to, um, uh, to, to, to even like have that dignity of changing. And then in terms of healthcare, it, it's, it's, that's another area that I feel there's more investment that needs to be done. Like in the whole Madari constituency where we live and where I am, I am from, we only have three public hospitals. And, and when I say three public hospitals, these are hospitals that are not close to the people. An estimate of Madari population is more than 500,000 people. And these hospitals, they don't have medications. Uh, they are not friendly, especially to young women. Uh, they are not friendly also to the majority of the population. And even accessing medication is problematic. So you find it's really hard growing there as a girl. But also... One thing that I usually say that the thing that has fueled my activism, my feminism, is Madari community. The thing that still things are hard, you're being discriminated. The levels of inequality in this country don't care about us. We're the ones who go to demonstrate for the rights of the majority. 
But the way we stick together and support each other, the level of organizing, even most of organizations that are there, like for example, Organization Coalition for Grassroots Human Rights Defender, it couldn't be where it is now if it wasn't the Madare community. But now looking at the levels of, I usually give an example. I would have been that statistic of girls that maybe died because of unsafe abortion or maybe died because of violent partner. But I'm here and speaking this so that also the different stakeholders to hear why it's important investing on girls and women's struggle and work within the movement and why it's important even investing on women human rights defenders because we do this work because of the struggles we have gone on a personal level not just with so people but on a personal level and rachel was being abused when she was still a minor uh, when rachel was being when i was i was the sex i was having which was not a consent which for me i see that as defilement when most of the time even now i have to struggle so much um uh, to tell people why they need to be respected and not see us as a second-class citizen uh, coming from certain community uh, because we have no that privilege of even education. We have no that privilege of even opportunities. Thank you very much for sharing your personal account and reflecting on your upbringing and your experiences while uh, living in Madare as a young teenager. I do share sincere uh, empathy after hearing what you've reflected to us, uh, Rachel. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Juliet, I'm sure that you have had some setbacks in your work. What kind of setbacks did you experience and how did or do you deal with those? I think one of the major setbacks that I have had in my work, like Rachel, is the challenge to have uh, support for this work we do. It's work that needs constant morale because it's risky and you're also just hoping that you're safe wherever you are. Uh, as Especially my father was really against me doing activism because I was emotionally invested in it. My elder brother was killed by police in Madare. I also grew up in Madare uh, listening to Rachel recount her growing up in Madare took me back. And I remembered all the struggles, no toilets, no bathroom lack of sanitary towels, ETC. And it's sad that we're still, we're still going on with that struggle of basic needs a hundred years later because Madara is a hundred years old. So the lack of support from um, family and also some of my friends who just don't understand why you would dare the government to do this, why you'd call out the government so strongly to do one or two things. Uh, and also sometimes the community does not understand why we fight against extrajudicial executions because there's some there's a, there's an element of uh, insecurity that they think is being handled when police kill people who they think to be petty thefts or petty criminals. But from where we stand from, we really do not stand for killings. We want the law to be followed. If someone has committed a mistake, let them be arrested. So fighting for, for the community, when the community is also not 100% on your side, has been a challenge uh, on my end. Also resources. We really do not have resources. We do this on a voluntary basis. We're going to collect cases. But for me, I think also the emotional price that we pay doing this work is a lot. I got depressed this year just thinking about all the people I have documented, all the women I have worked with on the journey of losing their son, 
the postmortem, the court cases, and the fact that they wouldn't stop. That's what that's what was killing me. That every time there's a police killing, like last week, I don't know if you guys in South Africa saw the the case that was trending in Kenya about the two brothers who were killed by police, Kendrakoma brothers. That week we had seven young men killed from our community. And so the fact I, it was it was crazy for me that we keep fighting, we've done everything, we've got the UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial killings, but this challenge is ongoing. That really hurt me. Um, but then I got to understand that the struggle is a protracted struggle, that the results are not a one-off, that eventually it's a war, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, and that eventually we will win. It's a struggle. That is why it's a struggle. So I had to... Um, collect myself back and understand and even take some time off the struggle. Just tell my team, I need, I need a break. I need to rejuvenate myself. I need to isolate myself until I am well again, which is something most activists do not do because, again, we do not have psychosocial support for our work. And it is work that is mentally exhausting. It is work that really takes a toll on your mental health. We are young people. We are hopeful for the future, but the things that are happening are killing our hope for a better tomorrow. So it was important for me to take a break and just analyze things better, to rejuvenate myself, to come back. That was a major, major setback for me, but um, Aluta Continua. Certainly, Aluta Continua, my sister. We, we do take note that one of the setbacks that you've shared with us is that the the stability and and the and the status of one's mental health is one of the setbacks that are experienced during the fight for communities and also during the fight for upholding the rule of law at all times at the beginning of our conversation juliet we noted that you are particularly committed to women and children and specifically try to address taboo topics such as female menstruation. Do you think this kind of education can help defeat female genital mutilation? Yes, I really think so. In at Madara Social Justice Center, we have a fantastic warrior of female genital mutilation. Her name is Rama Wako from the Borana community. So, And we've been doing uh, a lot of community dialogues with these women, these young women, talking about our rights as women, our rights as children, uh, as sexual and sexual reproductive health rights. And we have seen a significant decrease in the number of FGM and also early marriages and enforced marriages. So that has, in fact, that is one of the major successes we celebrate at Madari Social Justice Center. So I really do believe that these are conversations we need to have at all levels as a community because one of the one of the disadvantages we have from colonialism is the degeneration of our society. No one's taking care of the children as we did back then. And we used to say every child is our responsibility as a grown-up man or woman. Nowadays we're so individualistic, everyone's looking out for their children. So these community centers help us to try and connect with our roots as Africans and look out for the children and speak to the children and 
teach the children what they need to know. So that's one of the major successes that uh, we have. And one of the major, uh, I think, practices I would encourage people to, to do. Community dialogues with young children and young women. And let's talk about FGM. Let's talk about our menstrual health. Let's talk about our rights as children because they need to know. Somebody needs to teach them. Female genital mutilation is still a widespread practice in Kenya, although fortunately the trend is declining. In recent years, an increasing number of reports have noted that the growing difficulties of human rights organizations in Kenya, the scope for action is shrinking. Particularly, legislative proposals have restricted the scope of action of Kenyan civil society in recent years. The criminalization of human rights defenders has intensified. Arbitrary arrests and lengthy court proceedings have made the work of human rights defenders even more difficult, especially in marginalized settlements. Rachel, um, would you please come in? Experts talk about a shrinking space in Kenya. Does this match your experience? Uh, thank you so much. This, this, like, I think for me, um, I was waiting for that question and uh, talking to a level that I work in the grassroots. At the same time, I sit in different spaces like mainstream, like Amnesty Kenya, and now sitting in a donor space, like being advisory board member of uh, Danish in Kenya and their minister for development. So one thing I usually say, and this is very clear, there is shrinking space, civic space in Kenya, that's true, and it's becoming more worse. But the reality has been even for our organization, Coalition for Grassroots Human Defender, for Madari Social Justice Center, for Dandora Social Justice Center, for Bungilawa Mama, most of our work has been existing in shrinking civic space. And when I mean shrinking civic space, is that even lacking resources, where we do a lot of work and our work is never given visibility, where we expected to also give intellectual labor and our work not being compensated, where a majority of us have always been arrested. So the point I'm trying to make is that um, we should not only focus shrinking civic space when mainstream organizations, bank accounts have been frozen, when they don't access money like there are money to pay either office or staff. But all of us should be shrinking in civic space where now, even during this time of COVID, um, Article 39 of Kenya Constitution tells you you have the right to protest. But now politicians are starting doing elections, but activists cannot go and protest even if you are five. That's, or public cannot go and protest. That's shrinking civic space. Uh, yes, the laws are very problematic with the shift of the government at the moment. But what I believe and from my experience organizing, and like the way Juliet said, most of us are young. Like me, I'm below 30. Juliet, you also, she's also below 30, right? Um, because of our work, we're forced to, like because of our experience and struggle, that's what made us get into this space at early age. And being able to know how movement has been and how it was before doesn't mean before it was much better but with the 2010 constitution that we just uh, celebrated last month 27th of august 2021 it gives us more power but at the same time this power is being given now taken away by the current government and that's where the role of the social movements comes in like our movement was never registered which also gave us a lot of power despite 
were experiencing um, the other shrinking uh, space that was not enabling for us to operate. But we had the power of telling community this is our movement. But the moment I usually think, yes, I agree in terms of structures of organizations and also reporting to donor. But at the same time, I think it also shrinks the space when also donors decide who to give them money and who not to give them money, who to sit in whatever place and not to sit in whatever place. That's why for me, even nowadays, I usually tell my fellow comrades, we need to understand if you're invited to a space, is it an invited space that you are, you are there? Is it an invited space? Or it's a space that you've been just called to just come and push the number. So this also pulls back to us in terms of how are we organizing differently. Like for us, during this time of COVID, we're like government will arrest us. Most of us are broke, are poor activists. That's for sure, are poor feminists. But one thing we can use in terms of advocacy, since we don't have the privilege of bundles, is that let's use activism. Let, let's use art. That's why like you'll see our murals and most activists, even centers in Kenya for Actives that don't get uh, donor money, they started using murals, like throw, drawing murals that have message to say we are against human rights violation. And, and the other thing, like, for example, our movement ran this uh, very radical feminist campaign called Pussy Power campaign. Yes, would have said it's women power, but we feel women power has been used and the patriarchs have normalized it. But we realized because the space was shrinking, when you say women power is just taken serious, like not seriously, but like, let's bring this radical conversation that people start asking the question, even the oppressors. Why the word pussy power? Why is the biology usually used against women? And with all of that said, uh, looking at civil society, the NGOs, the social movements, the human rights defenders, why do you think they continue to stand up for women's rights in Kenya, despite all odds? So f for me, uh, it is usually very clear. Uh, one thing that we need to acknowledge, and this also has been my critique even in donors, there's so much money, development aid money, uh, that goes to governance, that goes to ending corruption, that goes to, um, let's say, accountability. But according to Ewid report um, that was done this year, uh, it said it's only 1% of development aid uh, that goes to women's rights organizations. And you haven't trickled it down, let's say, to LGBTQ organizations. And you haven't trickled it down to feminist-led organizations. So um, it, clearly, we are the ones who experience a lot of challenge as women, uh, as girls. But the investment is, is, is like even, not even a drop in the ocean. And the risk, that ca the risk that we experience, and keeping in mind that women, we are not homogeneous. The struggle for sex workers is another struggle. The struggle nowadays we are dealing with, even in Kenya, is femicide struggle that we are pushing even many people to understand. First, if a woman has been killed, that's first violence against women. And we can't use even the, uh, the, the moral card to victimize women or young women when they chose to have con cons a consent relationship with someone. And humanizing the patriarch and not humanizing the victim. So for me, I still feel that um, it's systematic and it's something that also uh, we have to keep on fighting. And the fact that for me, I usually say personal is political. I've gone through these things. 
I wouldn't want to see another girl or another woman go through the same thing. I don't care which part of the world you are in, but the fact we exist, all of us as women, the struggle is the struggle that affects us is 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 all the same, even if it comes. Even if it comes like we will have to deal with class, but the fact you exist as a woman, patriarchy will never tell you you're okay. But also acknowledging the fact that uh, there are women who benefit through patriarchy or now they are being socialized. So also it's also a lot of work also trying to convince our fellow sister that all of us are suffering because of patriarchy. It's clear that the advocacy for women's rights is continued in order to uproot and eradicate the injustices faced today in order for the future generations to not experience the same. Now, before we come to an end of this really exciting episode, please allow me two last questions. Juliet, uh, if you could please come in with your reflections. Next year, Kenya will be holding presidential elections. What do you wish for the next elections? Moreover, I'm not talking specifically about political party preferences, but rather about the election proceedings. I wish that there will be no violence in this year's election because every election here in Kenya, we are sure to see violence. We are sure to see police beating civilians. We are sure to document cases of police killings. I really hope that next year there will be no violence in elections in Kenya. I also really hope that the elections will not be rigged because it's also one of the things we've been experiencing in Kenya. The last elections we had, one of the IBC commissioners, Chris Musando, died. Many people say he was murdered. Uh, I really hope we are not going to see a, re- a repeat of that because it is a direct attack to our sovereignty as the people of Kenya. It is saying to us that our votes doesn't really count, that the powers that be get to decide who becomes the next president. So I'm hoping to see a free, fair, credible election and a peaceful one at that. I hope to see Kenyans understanding that this is our country. We cannot ban it and that we are each other's keeper and that there are only two classes of us and of the rich. So I don't want to see poor people killing each other for somebody else, as we have been seeing in previous elections. And that is the basis of our political education at, as, as MSJC, that let do not take up other people's struggle and kill your fellow poor person for the benefit of the other person. So I'm hoping to see sanity and I'm hoping to see peace and that we remember that so many lives have been lost in the, in the chase for power and for power that does not benefit us at the ground at the end of the day. May the hopes you've shared with us become prayers that do uh, materialize and come to fruition. Now, the population of Africa is 75% youths. How are we preparing for our future, for a future full of freedom? We need to teach our African youths our true history because without knowing who, where we are coming from, there's no way of preparing for a future. We do not even understand why we are here in the first place. So we need to work on, and I don't know who is able to reach out to African youths collectively, because also our social movements have not been working together. For example, we don't work with the social movements in South Africa. We see them, we cheer them on. We, wanna, uh, we, we want to be like 
the radical movements of South Africa, but there's no link. There's no, we are not coming together as Africans to try and sort out our problems. And I think that's the, that's the biggest undoing we are having right now in the continent. Everyone is doing their little thing, but in their own corners. Everyone is trying to better Africa and better the world, but we are not coming together to do it. We are trying here in Kenya. We have realized that's one of the biggest challenges we have as the civil society. So we're trying to come together So because next year is a big year and we need to have, we need to be together. But for Africa, I haven't seen that. Uh, I haven't seen anyone try to put out that initiative. But it is important because even as the youth are 75%, who's organizing the youth? Who's talking to the youth? Maybe, maybe there are people doing that at uh, grassroots levels, but we need an umbrella organization for youth in Africa. In fact, I was thinking about that this morning when I woke up because Africa is for the youth. Africa is a youthful continent, but we're not preparing our youth for the Africa we want to see. There's no preparation that's taking place per se because our education system is absolutely terrible, especially the, the history that our people are learning in school. It is history that makes them feel inferior. It is history that you are not proud of. Our history, for example, here in Kenya, starts with slavery, how we were enslaved as a people. But when you, go, when you do your own personal research on your history, you are actually a proud Kenyan. I am very proud. I'm a very proud Kenyan today. But after going through our real true history that we fought, that we stood our ground, that all we wanted was our land and freedom. But we are not really taught that. And even if it is taught, it is really subdued. It's almost like they don't want you to know who you really are. So I think we need a, we need a youth umbrella for Africans so that now we can start having those discussions. And uh, maybe add something on that. We need to bring youth in decision-making platform. And not just youth to be seen, we are ticking box, but youth to come up with their, because we know youth, we have different ideas, um, creative ideas, uh, and also like um, we know our struggle, the way struggle evolves in different countries. You can't use Kenya as a marketing scheme, let's say for Senegal. It, 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 it's, it's hard. But there are those underlying issues that all of us are going through, like for example, unemployment, it's, it's a big issue in the African continent. I usually feel bad seeing my brothers and sisters dying in Mediterranean Sea, going to look for opportunity in Europe. And Africa is a rich continent. Africa is an innovative continent. Africa, we are, the, like we are the brain. We are feeding Europe. And now if you look, Europe is collapsing. Africa, we are still strong. But we should center this conversation, ensuring that uh, we appreciate, because ideally is that uh, even the youth, we have youth in different spaces. I'll not tell all the youth, come we make noise as Rachel Mikali. But in different spaces, even if it's business or private sector, are they doing uh, business with human rights that are in line with human rights and not oppressing? At the same time, are we holding our government into account? They see from us and going and investing in European or US money that is meant to ensure that this continent can be able to support itself. Like the way my inspiration, like um, Comrade Du passed away, uh, the former president of um, Burkina Faso, Sankara. Like the way he was able to ensure like women are put in the center, youth are put in the center of these discussions. So every discussion I believe now 
forth that are supposed to go on should not go without youth being involved. And when I mean youth, it's gender inclusive. And even youth who are living with disability, because you can't leave them also in the picture. They're also youthful population. As we conclude, I do wish to appreciate you, Rachel and Juliet. Thank you very much for the personal reflections and interesting insights that you have both shared with us. Some of the things that stood out for me from this conversation with Rachel and Juliet are that the issues facing women are diverse and many. With the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, it was clear that the government perhaps didn't understand the priorities and routines of women, specifically women living in informal settlements, as they were not able to access water when they needed to. One can only imagine the impacts of this on female health issues and things like menstruation. Not only a practical consideration, but an issue of dignity and basic human rights. I was impacted by both Juliet and Rachel's personal experiences of gender-based violence, as well as the fact that they put their lives on the line doing the activism work that they do. This is work of passion and purpose, a great inspiration to all of us. This work comes at a tremendous personal cost. Their families don't always understand and support their work. Their own mental health is impacted and then there's the discouraging fact that only 1% of development funding support is directed towards the advocacy of women's rights, which makes it difficult to create sustainable solutions. This has been our Kenya episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. We hope you enjoyed it. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Saharan Africa is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQI rights, and engages against violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, Simply check for Freedom Foundation Africa. <music>